It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Brian Stevenson is the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, it's a nonprofit law firm in Montgomery, Alabama. For more than three decades, Brian has worked tirelessly to defend those who've been wrongly accused, denied justice, or shown no mercy. The Equal Justice Initiative has won cases for more than 115 unfairly condemned death row prisoners. Brian's book, Just Mercy, I believe, should be on every bookshelf in America. It is a revelation. At the core of Brian's work is the shocking fact that we imprison more people in our country than any other nation on earth. And one in three black men born in this century is expected to be incarcerated. One in three. This is a defining issue of our time. Brian believes we are all broken by this injustice and our healing begins with understanding, with empathy, with compassion, and ultimately mercy. I believe that what you're doing in your work and most recently in your book is that you're trying to actually speak to the super soul Mm. of America. Mm. You have a beautiful belief that can be summed up in one sentence. I love this sentence. It's something that I think every single person who's watching us, who's hearing us around the world can relate to, and that is you are not the worst mistake that you've ever made. That's right, yeah. My clients have taught me that each person is more than the worst thing they've ever done. Because when I meet them, I meet them through some accusation of something horrific and terrible. Mm -hmm. And what they teach me is that they're more than that crime, they're more than that worst act. And I really have come to believe that if someone tells a lie, they're not just a liar. If someone takes something that doesn't belong to them, they're not just a thief. Even if you kill somebody, you're not just Mm -hmm. a killer. And what a just and evolved and um, compassionate society has to do is to kind of figure out the other things you are Mm -hmm. and make sure we understand that part of each person. I will have to say that before reading Just Mercy, I had this view of criminals, Mm -hmm. like criminals are in a category. Mm -hmm. The prison system is in its category. So you need uh, prisons because people commit crimes, Mm -hmm. and if they're committing crimes, they deserve to be in prison, Mm -hmm. and that's really not my problem because I'm not a person who's committing crimes. I will say 
that halfway through reading this, I literally felt my heart opening. Mm. And I will be forever changed mm. at the way I look at mm. people who are, mm. quote, not like me, mm. who are behind bars. Mm. I mean, that, that is what, what, what you did. Well, well, thank you for that. I, I genuinely believe that if most people saw what I see on a regular basis, they would think differently about the world. They yeah. would really have a different understanding. And there are reasons why um, you felt that way. Lots of people feel that way. Yeah. It's because we've actually been taught and trained and pushed to think that way. I think for the last 40 years, we've all been a little bit corrupted by what I call the politics of fear and anger, where we quickly demonize other people. We've been told to be afraid. We've been told to be angry. We've kind of put these people in these institutions far away. We don't see them. We don't get to interact with them. And, you know, when you're afraid and you're angry, it's easier to kind of think things about people that may not be complete and fair. But it's also true that when you don't have to see it, when you're distant, uh, it's easier to kind of imagine this world that is a world you don't have to kind of spend any time worrying about. Which is exactly what I think is going on in our country right now, you know, where we see almost on a regular daily basis racism rearing its ugly head in ways that without uh, body cams yeah. and cameras, yeah a lot of people could not have imagined. So what, what is going on? You know, I think that there is this presumption of guilt that gets assigned to black and brown people in this country. It's a presumption of dangerousness. And I think it's a result of our history of racial inequality that we've never adequately confronted, that we have never adequately dealt with. Yeah. And we all carry this sort of implicit bias and it manifests itself. It's become problematic because we're we're uh, so anxious and we're so ready to judge one another. Yeah. Those of us in the black community know that these things have been going on for years. There just weren't cameras to show you that they were going on. Yeah. And I was trying to explain it in this way. I have a fear of pit bulls. Mm. I love dogs. Mm. I have five dogs. Mm. I've had 21 dogs in my lifetime, yeah. but I have a fear of pit bulls. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what you tell me about pit bulls. I have this, this, conscious and unconscious belief yeah. that a pit bull will turn on me, a pit bull will hurt me, a yeah. pit bull will, that is my unconscious belief, whether that is true or not. Yeah. And I think that to many white people, many of them police officers, black men, brown men are like pit bulls. Mm -hmm. It's, the, right, it's right, like right. pit bulls. I think the great evil of American slavery was not the involuntary servitude, was not the forced labor. I think the great evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference we created, the ideology of white supremacy. We made up. The idea that because your skin is white, <clears throat> exactly. you are better. That's right. And we did that because slave owners wanted to feel moral and Christian and just while they owned other human beings. And to do that, they had to see these people they owned as less than human. Yeah. And our 13th Amendment doesn't deal with this narrative of racial difference. It doesn't deal with the ideology of white supremacy. That's why I argue that slavery didn't really end in 1860 it just evolved. It turned into decades where we had lynching and racial terrorism. And Jim Crow. And Jim Crow to support and sustain this racial hierarchy. Okay, okay. can you explain this? Because the hardest thing I think for a lot of people who are not people of color, Caucasian people, to understand is why slavery mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. has anything to do mm -hmm. with now. That was the thing that, that always comes <clears throat> up and even right. in my discussions with my friends yeah. who are not black, it's like, but. I didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't do anything, and that was then, so yeah. what does that got to do yeah. with yeah. me? Well, I think part of it is is that we are so quick to kind of, you know, 
see if it's safe for me to talk about this. So I'm, I'm, am I going to get blamed? And we yeah. put our defenses up. And that's not really what we need. We don't need to be blaming people. We need to just understand. And the way that slavery shifts... How do we speak to the souls of each other I, I, without blame? I think part of it is understanding how we got where we are and then making shifts. And so what I say to people about why that's relevant today is, so the whole demographic geography of this country was shaped by the racial terror that followed slavery. We have black people in Oakland and Los Angeles and Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, New York, Los Angeles. And these people of color fled to these communities, not as immigrants looking for new opportunities. They fled as refugees from lynching and violence. And, the, right. and for me, the ugliness of segregation wasn't just that you couldn't get, you know, to the, you couldn't go to school, you couldn't vote. It was the humiliation. My parents were humiliated every day of their lives. Every time they saw that white and colored sign, they were burdened and beaten and marginalized. And it carries with you. There are injuries that come from that. And white people were mis misled, too, because they were taught that they're better than other people just because they're white. That's kind of child abuse. It's kind of a lie we give to children, and we haven't helped them recover. And so now this presumption of dangerousness and guilt is out there. So we have the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. And you say that this has fundamentally changed us as a nation. How is that? Well, I think we've become a nation that basically throws you away uh, without much thought. We've put uh, a million people in jails and prisons for drug dependency. We decided to deal with drug dependency as a crime issue rather than a health issue. We declared a war on drugs. We took away a discretion we called for mandatory sentencing. We competed with each other, politicians, on who could be the toughest on crime. And when you do that day in and day well, it does change you. I think it corrupts you. You actually lose your capacity to be compassionate. You lose your capacity to be merciful. And when you lose that capacity, you actually end up in a very bad place. And but we do are we not need place. to be tough on crime? Do we, we're a society that do, needs to be tough on crime. Most of the people we put in jails and prisons are not there because they're a threat to public safety. Uh, we did that because we were looking for ways to make ourselves look tough. No, the crime rate, the violent crime rate, is actually where it was in most communities in the 1960s, before we had 2.3 million people in jails and prisons. And um, one of the things we've done is we've actually disrupted communities. We've made it more likely that people will offend. I talk to 13 and 14-year-old boys in poor neighborhoods who tell me that they don't expect to be free by the time they're 21. And it's a tragic thing for me to hear. But that's what they see happening in their communities. They see their friends and their brothers and their neighbors uh, effectively dying from being sent to prison or dying from drugs and, war and, ga and gang warfare. And it becomes an expected way of yes, life. Yes, exactly right. And that nothing is more tragic than the profound absence of hope that believing that going to jail and prison is inevitable. And we have too many kids in our society living in the margins of society with this expectation of incarceration. Attorney Brian Stevenson has been called America's young Nelson Mandela. Earlier this year, he won the release of Anthony Ray Hinton, a wrongfully convicted man who spent nearly 30 years on death row. In his New York Times bestselling memoir, Just Mercy, Brian writes about the spiritual gifts he's received from his clients on death row. You say this book is about getting closer to mass incarceration and extreme punishment in America. It's about how easily we condemn people in this country and the injustice we create when we allow fear, anger, and distance to shape the way we treat the most vulnerable among us. It's also about a dramatic period in our recent history, a period that indelibly marked the lives of millions of Americans of all races, ages, and sexes, and the American psyche 
as a whole. Okay, tell me what happened when you first went to death row in December of 1983. I was nervous. I was a law student. I was so anxious. How old were you? I was 22, maybe. Okay. And I went back there and I was, they had just sent me down there to tell him that he wasn't at risk of execution. And I was waiting for them to bring him in. And when they opened the door, I was just shocked by how weighed down with chains he was. He had handcuffs on his wrists. He had a chain around his waist, shackles on his ankles. What prison? This was in Jackson, Georgia, Georgia Diagnostic Classification Center. It's where death row is. It's where the executions take place. And when they got the chains off of him, he walked in. And I was so nervous. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm just a law student. I don't know anything about the death penalty. I don't know anything about criminal law. I don't know anything about constitutional law. But when I said, but you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year, that man said, wait, 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 say that again. I said, you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. And he grabbed my hands and he said, wait, say that again. I said, you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. And he says, I can't tell you how happy I am to see you. He said, you're the first person I've met who's not a death row prisoner or a death row guard. He told me that he'd been talking to his wife and kids, but he hadn't let them visit because he was afraid they would show up and he'd have an execution date. And we sat down and talked for almost three hours. And we'd only scheduled to be there for an hour. And so the guards got mad. They came in and they were treating the guy so roughly when they were taking him out. And I tried to get him to stop. And he kept saying, Brian, don't worry about this. Just come back. And they were pushing him out. And just before they pushed him out the room, uh, they shoved him and he didn't move. And he turned to me and he said, Brian, don't worry about this. You just come back. And then he did something I've never forgotten. He closed his eyes, he threw his head back, and he started to sing. And he started singing this hymn. He started singing, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still oh, praying as I'm onward bound. And then he said, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. They started pushing him down the hallway. I could hear the chains clanging, but I could still hear him singing about higher ground. And things changed for me. All of a sudden, I knew I wanted to help condemn people get to higher ground. But more than that, I knew that my journey to higher ground was tied to his journey to higher ground. If he didn't get there, I wouldn't get there either. And that's what proximity does for us. I think when people get proximate to the problems and the things they care most deeply about, not only does it help them do better work, be better problem solvers, I think it changes them. I think when you get close to something that is um, meaningful to you, it changes you. And that's why I think we all have to find ways to get closer to the things we care about, the problems that burden us, the things that keep us up at night. We run from problems, most of us, but sometimes we have to run to the problem. So the pivotal story in this beautiful book that you've done is about Walter McMillan, yeah. who spent six years on death row for a crime he did not commit. Yeah. Walter McMillan was an innocent Alabama business owner who, despite credible alibis and no tangible evidence, was sentenced to death for the murder of an 18-year-old white woman. Brian helped get Walter's conviction overturned after prosecutors agreed that the case had been mishandled, but not before Walter spent six years on death row, including a full year before he even went to trial. Walter passed away in 2013. He and Brian remained close friends until the end. Was Walter the moment you decided you were gonna to try to save people who were specifically on death row? He was part of it, yeah. He was the first time when I saw just how troubled our system was because here was a man completely innocent at his home, raising money for his sister's church, surrounded by 30 other people at the time the crime takes place 11 miles away. 
and, and city. In Monroeville, Alabama. That was the most ironic thing about this. Harper Lee's hometown. Harper Lee, and they, if you go to Monroeville, they love to kill a mockingbird. And yet, were completely indifferent to the plight of this innocent black man who was put on death row for 15 months before the trial. It was the only case I've ever done where the client was actually put on death row before ever being He convicted. was arrested and brought immediately to death row, which <clears throat> exactly. is like... It was just... Unheard to, of. Unheard of to reinforce this idea that he was guilty and dangerous and to also try to coerce him into making a false confession, something he was unwilling to do. And it was, it was so debilitating to all the people of color in that community people of color and poor people. There were some poor whites that knew him well. And they would come up to me and they would say, Mr. Stevenson, it would have been so much better if he'd been out in the woods hunting by himself when this crime took place, because at least then we could entertain the possibility that he might be guilty. But because we were there with him and we know he's innocent, we don't know how to make sense of this. We don't yeah. know what to tell our children about how to survive in a place like this. That's right. It was so dispiriting yeah. to everybody in that community. I appreciated and have hold such value for what the stories unfold mm -hmm. about who we are as a country mm -hmm. and how heart opening it yeah. was for me that I think literally every person should read this book. I want every person to get this book. But I want to talk about how your work on death row, mm -hmm. how that enhanced and emboldened your own soul. When yeah. you spend time in the harshest of places, yeah in the harshest of places where there is no hope. Yeah. 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 You, yeah. you talk about the brokenness yeah. and how your connection to their brokenness also allowed you to see your own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when you put yourself in situations like this, you learn things. You learn about the power of hope. You know, you learn that you have to believe things that you haven't seen if you really want to change the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned that I couldn't just have ideas in my mind about what I wanted to do. I, I needed to be informed, I needed to be strategic and tactical, but I also learned that I wasn't going to actually make a difference if the ideas in my mind weren't fueled by some conviction in my heart. Mm -hmm. And so you learn to kind of trust what your heart tells you about what you have to do. You learn to stand when everybody else is sitting, you learn to speak when other people are quiet because you have to do the thing that advances justice, that advances what you believe in. Okay. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, 
Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. What are some of the worst cases? The worst cases are children. Are children. Ian. Yes. I, I, I mean, my clients have gotten younger and younger. Tell us the story of Ian. Ian Manuel was a 13-year-old boy who was pretty much living in the streets. He was trying to get admitted to a gang. He was required to commit this robbery. He attempts a robbery. He shoots a woman in the, in the side of the face. He's arrested. He's charged with uh, attempted murder. Uh, he's told to plead guilty, and he'll get a 15-year sentence. He pleads guilty, and the judge gives him life without parole. He's so small when he gets to the adult prison that they don't have a uniform big enough for him. And the warden has to make a decision. Do I put this little 13-year-old boy in a dorm where he'll be preyed upon, or do I put him in solitary confinement? So they put him in solitary confinement. And the rules in solitary confinement is that you can't get out uh, until you have a perfect six months. And because he was 13 and he was struggling and he was uh, abandoned and he was neglected and he was in this horrific condition, he never had a perfect six months. So he spent 18 years in solitary confinement. He never touched another human being. He never got programs. He never saw anybody. When we started working with him, he had literally been in a cage in an isolated area for 18 years. And he's an amazing human being. He's bright. He writes incredible poetry. Uh, but he's also struggled. He's cuts himself, he's attempted suicide multiple times, and helping him recover has been a great challenge, but it's also been a great privilege, because he takes someone who's been crushed and broken and thrown away, and yet see that person capable of creating beauty and an honest reflection, which he does powerfully in his poetry. And you describe in Just Mercy many of your clients yeah. as broken people, yeah. and you say our society wants to execute mm -hmm. or hide away all the broken ones. But yeah. you believe that we're all broken, really. Yeah, I do, you know, I mean, uh, it's And funny. it's our brokenness that defines our humanity. It, really. it, it is, I mean, I think the truth of it is, is that we've all fallen down. We've all made mistakes, we've all hurt each other, and we want to recover from that. If we're a decent human being, we want to kind of get to a better place. And that's true for all the people who are incarcerated. And I think when we begin to recognize our own brokenness, we recognize our need, our obligation, to help the broken recover. My, my clients are broken people. I li work in a broken system. Uh, people, judges, prosecutors, everybody's been broken by their distance from the people that they're trying to, and sometimes manage. And I think that means that we've got to think more honestly about what it means to be broken, what it means to have failed, what it means to fall down, but also what it means to stand up, to recover, to redeem ourselves and to redeem others. So, so many of your clients have never experienced a moment of real compassion. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of the guy who was being executed 
and in the 14 Herbert hours. Richardson. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, yeah, Herbert Richardson was a Vietnam vet, came back traumatized from Vietnam, couldn't get the legal help he needed. I was back there with him right before the execution, and he was saying to me, all day long, people have been saying, what can I do to help you? Can we get you water? Can we get you coffee? Can we get you stamps to mail your last letter? This is on the last day of his life. last day of his life. Can we get the phone for you? And I never will forget him saying to me in those last few, this was just about 30 minutes before the execution. He said, Brian has been so strange. He said, more people have said, what can I do to help you in the last 14 hours of my life than they ever did in the first 19 years of my life? And I was holding his hand, standing there with him, thinking, yeah, where were they when you were three, when your mom died? Where were they when you were seven and you were experimenting with drugs? Where were they when you were a young teenager returning from Vietnam, traumatized and drug addicted? And with those questions resonating in my mind, he was pulled away. Uh, and, and strapped in the electric chair and executed. And the shame of that, for me, was what I couldn't let go. You know, they had the guards come in and shave the hair off his body to prepare him for the execution, and I watched those men do that. And I don't think I'd ever seen human beings more pained by something they had to do than, than those guards. They all quickly, most of them, quit uh, soon after. And just the pain and shame of that made me believe that we can do better. Then there are people like Jimmy Dill, who I write about in the book, mm-hmm. I'm having that conversation with right before they execute him and he's intellectually disabled and he can't get his words out and 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 that was a moment for me even though I wasn't present at the execution chamber that was very hard uh, and I remember just standing there with 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 tears running down my face and that's when I began reflecting on my own brokenness should the death penalty be banned in this country I think it should and I think the reason for that is that the question of the death penalty isn't do people deserve to die for the crimes they've committed? People commit some horrific crimes. I'm not going to dispute that. But I think the threshold question is, do we deserve to kill? And we have a system of justice that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. We have a system, Say that again. We have a system of justice that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. And we've never had more innocent people in jails and prisons than we have right now. We went from 300,000 people in jails and prisons in 1972 to 2.3 million people today, and that means we've never had more innocent people in jails and prisons than we have right now. We've had 154 people who were sentenced to death get exonerated, proved innocent. That means for every nine people we've executed in this country, one innocent person has been proved innocent. It's a shocking rate of error. But there are some people who don't deserve to ever set foot in society again. That's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean we have to kill them. We have the capacity to incarcerate people for a really long time. It really isn't about what people deserve. It's about us. And part of the reason why I think ending the death penalty would be good for us is that it would liberate us from some of the worst parts of our history. You can't be in counties and communities where people have been lynched and threatened and menaced and terrorized and then have a person of color taken to death row. Our death penalty is very racially skewed. You're dramatically more likely to get it if the victim is white than if the victim is black. And if the defendant is black and the victim is white, then it's even much greater chance of getting the death penalty. It's a way in which we actually create a world where people can legitimately say black lives don't matter because we don't protect people who are poor and we don't protect people of color in the same way we protect other people. And that's because we use all of our resources on expensive things like the death penalty at the cost 
of actually providing public safety to other folks. It also corrupts the way we see each other. There's a particular incident that you describe in Just Mercy that struck me. You were going into a prison where there was a pickup truck outside and yeah. it's got the Confederate yeah. flag. You're going to a courthouse. Yeah, there was a bumper sticker on this truck I hadn't seen before. This bumper sticker read, quote, if I'd known it was going to be like this, I'd have picked my own cotton. Hadn't seen that one before. Mm. And I went to the door, and there was a white guard at the door. And when he saw me, I said, hi, I'm here for a legal visit. He said, you're not a lawyer. I said, oh, yes, sir, I am. He said, where's your bar card? He actually made me go back to my car and get my bar card. What, what state is this? This is Alabama. Alabama. Said, your state. My state, yes. Okay. So I go get my bar card. I go up to him. I said, look, here's my bar card. He said, OK, well, you still have to go in the bathroom. I'm going to give you a strip cert. This is where they strip you naked and do a body cavity search. I said, no, lawyers don't get strip search. He said, you're coming into my prison. You're going to get in that bathroom. So I had to go in there and subject myself to a humiliating strip search. So then I come out and I said, I want to go see the client. So you got to go back there and sign this book. I knew I didn't have to, but I did. I was about to go inside after he finally opens the door and he grabs me by the arm. He said, hey, did you see that truck out there? I said, yeah, I saw that truck. He said, I want you to know that that's my truck. So angered me. And I was sitting in the, in the prison waiting for the client to come out. I was so This is angry. just a guard letting just you guard. in the prison. Yes, I wasn't expecting this. And then the client comes out, and the first thing he says to me, I'd never met him before, a young African-American man. He looks at me and he says, uh, did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? And I thought to myself, this is the strangest day I've had in a really long time. <laughs> I said, no, I didn't bring you a chocolate milkshake. I'm your lawyer. I'm here to represent you. And I started asking questions, and he wasn't paying attention. I realized he was hung up on this milkshake. And so I finally said, look, I'm sorry. I didn't know you wanted me to bring you a chocolate milkshake. The next time I come, I'll bring you a milkshake. And this man smiled, horrific background was in 29 foster homes by the time he was 10, severely mentally ill, schizophrenic, uh, crack addicted, uh, bipolar at 13, no medical care, homeless, and in the midst of a psychotic episode, commits a brutal crime, terribly defended at trial, gets the death penalty. We start working on the case, and finally it's time to go to court. And I see that guard, who I hadn't seen since, was the guard that brought him from the prison to the courthouse. And he's just glaring at me in this courtroom. We have three good days of court. I feel pretty good about the case. And a month later, I go see the client. And sure enough, there's the guard. He says, hello, Mr. Stevenson, how are you? Kind of threw me. I said, I'm fine. I said, I'll go in the bathroom for you. The same guy that had been so intimidating and had wanted you strip search before. Exactly, and who was in the courthouse when we had the hearing. And I said, I'll go in the bathroom. He said, oh, we're not going to do that today. I said, okay, I'll go over here and sign the book. He said, Mr. Stevenson, I saw you coming, and I signed you in. Trying to figure out what's going on. Right, exactly. So he takes me over to the door. I'm trying to figure out what's happening, and he's trying to unlock the door, and his hands start shaking so badly, he can't get the key in the lock. And I'm looking at him, and finally he gets the key in the lock. He unlocks the door. He turns to me. His face is red. He said, Mr. Stevenson, I have to say something to you. I said, what's that? He said, I was in that courtroom, and I was listening. He said, I want you to know I think what you're doing is a good thing. He said, I hope you keep fighting for justice. Would have never predicted it. Wow. Put his hand out and he said, you know, I came up in the foster care system too. I didn't think anybody had it as bad as, uh, as, as I did, but maybe your client had it worse. He said, sir, can I please shake your hand? I hope you keep fighting for justice. I would have never, wow. ever guessed it. And I walk inside. Mr. This is Confederate a, flag Mr. man. Mr. Confederate flag man. <laughs> and I'm walking inside finally just kind of blown away. And he grabs me by the arm. He said, wait, wait, I got to tell you something else. I said, what's that? I said, well, I just want you to know I did something on the way back from the courthouse to the prison. I said, what'd you do? So I decided to take an exit, and I took your client to a Wendy's, and I bought him a chocolate milkshake. Ugh. Would have never, ever is, guessed it. Yeah. And that just reminded me, even with my issues, yeah. that I have to be hopeful. I have to look for ways to embrace everyone, even those that have been misled and misdirected by this horrific history of racial inequality. Wow. 
So, I mean, that's such an incredible story to me about what happens when a, an inmate, a, a, quote, prisoner, gets humanized. Yes. How has the lives of your clients informed your own humanity? It's taught me that, you know, mercy is not something we give to people because they deserve it. Compassion is not something we offer to people because they're owed. It's what we do because it's the way we find mercy for ourselves. You can't get mercy unless you give it. Uh, you can't receive compassion unless you give it. And it's made me want to be um, merciful and compassionate. It's made me want to understand the people who are unhappy with me, who are hostile to me, who sometimes act as if they hate me. I used to get death threats and bomb threats. And it's made me not want to believe that the people behind those threats are just enemies or haters or bigots. It's made me recognize that they're like my clients. They need someone to kind of get past what's created this burden, this fear, this mm -hmm. anger, this It's really fear. It really it? is fear, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. when you're afraid, you'll do things that you wouldn't do yeah. uh, that are just and right. Yeah, and it's easy to, you know, be in church and talk about forgiveness yes. and listen, you know, sit under your trees, meditate and talk, <laughs> yeah. talking yes. about forgiveness. Right. It's, a, it's a lot harder right. when you have to actively engage with somebody who you feel is not like you. Exactly. And find that thread. That's right. Is redemption, though, possible for everybody, you think? I do. I think we have to believe that every person can get to a better place. I have some clients about whom I can say, this person will likely never be able to get released. They're, they're, they've been compromised in ways that that's not going to be an option. But I still believe that redemption is possible. I've never met anybody about whom I could say, this person is beyond hope, beyond really? redemption. And I've seen it. I've created moments, sometimes small moments with people, who have been really terribly treated that feel like hope, that feel like life, that even feel like love. And that makes me think uh, that, that we should accept that redemption is something we have to seek for everyone. Is that what gives you hope? It is. I, I, I actually, I, you know, I've seen uh, wrongly condemned people, liberated, freed. I've seen people who were told that they're worthless and nothing uh, reveal something beautiful and powerful. And that's incredibly affirming for me. And I remember one day I had this incredible young man and went to prison at 14. And he would just love to read. And he called me late one night uh, when he was about 20 and he just couldn't stop. He said, I have to call you, I have to talk. He had just finished reading The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoyevsky and he was just so full of things oh. he had to tell me. And I just listened to this young man just talk and talk and talk and he was so excited. And that's when I, and when I hung up, I thought to myself, we should never give up on children. We should never, ever. All children are children. We should never give up on them because everybody gave up on this young man. And so you've been able to change the laws for children. We have, yeah. We did a couple of cases that went to the Supreme Court that have now banned uh, life without parole sentences for children convicted of non-homicides and have banned mandatory life without parole for, for all kids. And uh, I'm really proud of that because I think we did something really disgraceful in the 1980s when we started calling some children super predators. And every state lowered the minimum age for trying children as adults. We still have 15 states where there's no minimum age for trying a child as an adult, which means that I sometimes represent 10 and 11-year-old kids who are looking at decades in an adult prison. We've got 10,000 children in adult jails and prisons where they're at great risk of sexual violence and abuse. Wow. You write about um, being... I think you call it a stone catcher, mm. right? <laughs> yes. From that Bible verse where yes. the mob is uh, yes. stoning the adulteress. Yes. And Jesus said, let he who is without sin yes. 
casts the first stone. I think when we see people being treated unfairly, when we see people who are at risk, when we see people who are unloved, when we see people thrown away, I think those of us who have a heart for compassion and justice and mercy, and those of us who want to be better people need to step in. And we need to do what we can to stop the judgments that are being made that are unfair. I think part of it is that we have to kind of adopt a different metric system for ourselves. I think often we measure how we're doing in life by how much money we make or how many people know our name and all these other kinds of metrics, how many people respect us. I think there's another way of measuring how you're doing by how many stones you catch, by how often you actually position yourself to help those who need help. There is something redemptive, powerful, transformative about catching the stones that people throw at each other unfairly. And what you say at the end of Just Mercy, I continue to meet stone catchers along the way who inspire me and make me believe that we can do better than we've done for the accused, the convicted and condemned among us, as well as those who are victimized by crime and violence, and that all of us can do better for one another. The work continues. How would you define mercy? Mercy is? Uh, mercy is like a mirror. <laughs> I think mercy is what you give to others uh, with the hope that it'll come back to you. It's what you give to people who don't deserve it. It's what you give to people who haven't asked for it. It's what you give and ah, come that's an aha. <laughs> you give it to people who don't deserve it. That's why it's mercy. Yes, yes, yes. That's why we say, Lord, have mercy Absolutely. on me. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. And justice is? You know, justice is a constant struggle. You know, it's what we need to respond to so many of our problems. You know, I tell people all the time, I don't believe that the opposite of poverty is wealth. I think we talk too much about money. I think the opposite of poverty is justice. It's the way we relate to one another. If we create conditions that allow us to be more honest and fair and just, that's how we deconstruct poverty. Wow. You knew early on that this was your calling, mm. working with the condemned. Mm. Um, do you think it's God's work? Mm. I, I certainly feel the pleasure of God in this work. I feel um, the hope of God. I feel the love of God uh, in standing next to people who have been uh, disfavored, who've been rejected, who've been condemned. Mm. You know, I really do think that you measure sometimes your spirituality. You measure the health of your soul, not by how you treat people who are rich and famous and privileged. I think you measure the health of your soul by how you treat the poor the incarcerated and the condemned. So I actually feel privileged to be able to stand next to condemned people, to serve the condemned, to serve the incarcerated, to serve the discarded and disfavored, because it's in that service that I feel the power of God most intensely. Really? That's where I feel the hope. Finish his sentence, I believe. I believe we're more than the worst thing we've ever done. I believe that grace is power. I believe that love is justice. And I believe that we have to judge how we're doing by how we treat the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. So what a beautiful. privilege to talk to you. You're That's so wonderful. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. <laughs> That's a prayer offering you oh. just gave us. Thank you for that. Next week, you can download my interview with one of Brian Stevenson's most extraordinary clients, Anthony Ray Hinton, a man who unfairly spent 30 years on death row until Brian Stevenson helped win his freedom. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. 
Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 